Be Christ's church. Impact the valley. Reach the world. All for the glory of King Jesus. Welcome to the North Roanoke podcast. Today, our lead pastor, Daniel Palmer, will be opening God's word for us. Our prayer is that you will encounter the living Lord as you hear his word proclaimed. Pray with me, church. God, we we do confess that we need you today, that we need you every day, every moment. And God, we're, we're not the only ones who need you. We live in a world that is desperate for your presence. God, they are desperate for your grace, and sadly, many of them don't, don't even know what they're desperate for, but we, we do, God. We thank you that we have heard the gospel, that many in this room have been rescued by the redeeming love of God poured out for us at Calvary through the gift, the offering, the sacrifice of Christ Jesus. God, we, we pray that we would not just confess that we need you, that we would just not say that we need you, but God, that we would, we would know you. God, that we would be filled with your spirit, that you would make us attentive to your word, and that day by day we would look less like our fleshly, sinful selves and and more like Jesus. God, that you would keep refining us and shaping us as we bump into those attitudes and behaviors that are less than Christ-like, that you would help us, God, to become more like your son. We pray it in his name and for his glory. Amen. Exodus chapter 1. Exodus chapter 1 is where we'll be today. I want to preach, as you turn to Exodus 1, I want to preach a message today on the subject of risking it all in faith for the next generation. Risking it all in faith for the next generation. We'll begin in verse 6 in just a moment, but as you're turning there, I want to say happy Mother's Day to every mom who is in this room and listening online and over in overflow in the sanctuary. I want to say uh, happy Mother's Day to the moms with little, little ones, to moms with uh, grown ones, moms who are now grandmoms and, and great-grandmoms. I want to also say happy Mother's Day to stepmoms and aunts and friends who step in as mom and dog moms. Moms with little ones they never got to hold. Moms who aren't yet moms that hope to one day be moms. Moms with grown children who passed far too young. And all the godly women in our church who are investing in the next generation like a mom. Uh, In our country, we've been celebrating Mother's Day for a little more than a century. Woodrow Wilson signed it into law in 1914, but the significance of motherhood stretches back to the beginning of time. It's a little older than just a century in its significance. Indeed, Mother's Day is something that, or the significance of motherhood anyway, is is significant all the way back to the beginning of time. Adam and Eve were commanded to fill the world with worshipers to be fruitful and multiply and to subdue the earth, Genesis 1.28. And newsflash, to be fruitful and multiply requires moms. 
Not, not just birthing persons, but moms. Though Adam and Eve sinned, and that sin led them out of the garden of God's favorable presence, God gave them a promise in Genesis chapter 3, 15, that one day a particular seed, a particular male offspring, would be born of a woman. That's Jesus, by the way. He would be born of a woman, and he would overcome Satan, and all who join Satan in his attempt to dethrone God's Son and steal his glory. In other words, after the fall, having children and training them to look for God's Son is a declaration of war against Satan and his worldly allies. Parenthood is spiritual battle. The significance and the stakes of that battle are highlighted by God in these pains of childbirth that come in Genesis 3.16. God says, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. It's not easy to have a child. The, the battle to get the world to God's Son would be painful. But the deliverance and the hope that God brings through His Son and through the sons and daughters who look for Him down through the generations would be worth the sacrifice. So let me, let me help you get this, frame, frame this message this morning. From Genesis 3 forward, moms who knew about God's promises to come through His Son have had to ask this question, really two questions. Is God true? Is He really going to send His Son? And is he worth it? That's a question all of God's people have to keep asking generation by generation. Is Jesus really going to come? And is it really worth the effort? And by the time we turn to Exodus, God is clarified that his son will come from the descendants of Abraham's offspring. For this to happen, a, a small family, a family of 70 people. You remember Abraham has Isaac, and Isaac has Jacob, and Jacob has 12 sons. And by the time we get to Exodus chapter 1, they're a, they're a family of 70 people in a mighty nation called Egypt. How will these 70 people not just become absorbed into Egypt and getting written off of the pages of history? How, do we, how does Israel even, how are they even going to survive or develop and in Genesis 46, verse 3, God had promised Jacob that that would happen in Egypt. He said, don't be afraid. You remember, they're, they're hungry, there's a famine, they need food. Joseph, one of the brothers, has arranged for them to provide food in Egypt. He says, don't be afraid to go down to Egypt, for there I will make you into a great nation. As Genesis ends, the Israelites are in Egypt where they have been protected for as long as Joseph has been alive and as long as the succession of Egyptian rulers could remember how Joseph had helped them avoid uh, being starved during the famine. But things are about to change for the people of God. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord, beginning in verse 6, and we'll read down through verse 14 to start. Then... Joseph died, and all his brothers, and all that generation. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong, so that the land was filled with them. Now there arose a new king over Egypt, who did not know Joseph. And he said to his people, Behold, 
the people of Israel are too many and too mighty for us. Come, let us deal shrewdly with them, lest they multiply. That's having babies, by the way. And if war breaks out, they join our enemies and fight against us and escape from the land. Therefore, they set taskmasters over them to afflict them with heavy burdens. They built for Pharaoh store cities, Pithom and Ramses. But the more they were oppressed, the more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. And the Egyptians were in dread of the people of Israel, so they ruthlessly made the people of Israel work as slaves and made their lives bitter with hard service in mortar and brick and in all kinds of work in the field. In all their work, they ruthlessly made them work as slaves. It had been good times for the people of Israel for a while in Egypt. People were thankful for them. But Joseph in that generation dies and there's a sudden and dramatic and cataclysmic change in their circumstances. And here's what I want you to remember and see in this text this morning. Firstly, a catastrophic change, a seismic change in your circumstances does not change God's promise or your mission. Do you believe that? A change, a massive change in your circumstances does not change God's promise to send His Son or our mission and involvement in that promise. In verse 6, we read that Joseph and his brothers and all that generation died. The generation with the closest proximity to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob had died. The generation who saw how God provided food for His people through Joseph to sustain His promises to Abraham had died. And there's an implied question between verse 6 and verse 7. It is this, how will God keep his promise now? How will he make a great and recognizable nation out of a family of 70 living in Egypt so that he can send his promised son through them? Will he really send his son? Will his son really get to the world to bring salvation to the nations? And verse 7 provides the answer to the implied question. They could have doubted God's promise. They could have just settled into Egypt and become Egyptians. But do you see how verse 7 begins? It begins with that beautiful word, but. But they didn't. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. They kept having children, church, lots of children. Verse 7 has five words in one verse for growth and multiplication. It's the only verse in the Old Testament that has all five Hebrew words for growth or multiplying packed into one verse. There was a whole lot of baby making going on among the people of God. God's people did what God commanded. And he grew them from a family into a nation within a nation that was strong and filling the land. They were doing what God commanded Adam and Eve to do in the very beginning. Be fruitful, multiply, subdue the land, wait for me to send my king. Verse 7 gives me hope, church. It gives me hope because it demonstrates to us that we can pass down God's promises and his purposes to the next generation. 
I hear families talk about grandma and how things used to be and the revivals of old and all these old times. And, and I get concerned sometimes that we're living on somebody else's faith rather than living out our faith in our generation. We stand today in what feels like an unprecedented season of generational change. 100 years ago, there were no mobile phones. Fewer than 6 in 10 American families had a personal vehicle just 100 years ago. Television did not exist. Nuclear weapons did not exist. Personal computers did not exist. Email did not exist. Texting did not exist. Customized apps and websites did not exist. Social media did not exist. And praise Jesus, the Dallas Cowboys did not exist. There's a lot of things that have changed. A lot of things have changed in the last hundred years. No matter what changes, God's promises and His mission have not changed. And I would submit to you that while there are a lot of advances in technology and a lot of creature comforts that are now available in many ways, I'm concerned about the changes that we see in our world and in our country. The world's trying to enslave us to its philosophy, just as Egypt was trying to enslave the people of God. But I want to submit to you, church, that so much of what we care about is exposed as inconsequential when we face pain. The Israelites, as the Egyptians turned up the heat on the Israelites, and they were confronted with, are you going to believe the promises of God, the purpose of God, and the mission of God? What did they do? They didn't abandon it. They had children. God's people have faced seismic changes in their circumstances in the past, and they have successfully passed along the faith to the next generation. How did they do it? They had kids, and they raised them to be holy people distinct and separate from the world in it, but not of it. Giving birth to a new generation and leading them to look to God and His Son who is coming is a statement of faith. We do this with expecting His hope and His deliverance from a world that for now is foreign to us, and we do it as an act of faith in God. This is true on both sides of the coming, the first coming of Jesus. The people of Israel had babies trusting God to give His Son to the world in a way that He could be known and recognized as the fulfillment of God's promises to Israel. And now that Jesus has come, we do the same. We have children and lead them to Jesus, making disciples of others along the way as well. We have sons and daughters, and we lead them to Christ the Son so that they will keep getting Jesus the Son to the nations until He comes. For the Christian family and for the church, the people of God, we need to understand that making babies is about the mission. Having babies and raising them in a gospel-grounded, gospel-saturated home and church is being on mission. And we do this in a world system that is, as Psalm 2-2 puts it, set against the Lord and His anointed, meaning Jesus. And in verse 8, we are introduced to a new king, 
over Egypt who does not know about Joseph. This king proves to be what the Bible Project videos call the worst character other than the serpent himself in the Bible so far. He thinks killing babies is good. This king of Egypt, this Pharaoh, acts a lot like Satan himself. Satan in the garden tried to stamp out the hope of enjoying God's blessing. And now that he couldn't do that because God promised to bring and restore blessing through his son, now Satan works through Pharaoh to try and break Israel's will to survive as a distinct people before Jesus, the promised son to come through Israel, could ever arrive. If he can stamp out Israel, he can prevent us from getting to Jesus, and the whole world can stand condemned before a holy God. Pharaoh wants to make life so difficult that the Israelites stop having children, lest they multiply, verse 10. That's his goal. Did you know the world still wants to do that to the people of God? The world still wants you to stop having children. Look at the birth rates in our country. We're not multiplying. Families are having less than two children. It takes three to multiply, by the way. You're just holding steady at two, right? Two that have two and two pass away and there's two left, right? Be fruitful and multiply. And the world wants to say to the church, kids are too expensive, they're too noisy, they're too dirty, they're too exhausting, they're too risky. It's exactly what Egypt is trying to do to the people of God here. And if the world can't stop us from multiplying, then what will they do? They will keep us from raising our kids to know and love Jesus. They will crowd our lives out with every other thing other than the Bible and biblical community. They'll crowd our lives out with sports and entertainment and fishing, and camping, and scouting, and vacations, and reunions, and hobbies, and pets, and sickness, and every other reason that we never really launch our lives into the Bible and biblical community. Egypt had prospered because of God's people. They had survived because God's people were there, but they had forgotten it. And by the way, Christians Down Through the Years, there's a great book called Christianity on Trial, where would the world be without Christians? They'd be in a mess. You know why hospitals exist? Because Christians decided to make hospitals. Christians have done the world a world of good. So when the world out there says, oh, Christians are the problem, they don't know what they're talking about. They're ignorant of world history. The world would be in shambles without Christians taking a stand for the gospel and for Christ and offering a cup of cold water in Jesus' name. But the Egyptians forget that, and the world keeps forgetting that. And they keep saying the people of God are the problem, and they keep coming back to fearing and attacking the people of God, those whose ultimate allegiance is to God. Why do they do that? Why does the world do that? Because the world wants a system that is about them and their fame and their glory rather than the glory of King Jesus. So the king of Egypt says that the Israelites are too many and too mighty, and he enslaves them, and a generation dies, and a new leader emerges, and life gets very difficult very fast. 
He puts taskmasters over them to to drive them with whips, to afflict them with heavy burdens, to make their lives bitter and give them all kinds of work and hard service and work in the field as slaves. Church, we live in a world that wants to enslave us. We live in a world that wants to rob our kids of true life. And as a result, they want to wear down our resolve and prevent us from being a holy and distinct and persistent people, bringing Jesus to the nations through the next generation. The world wants us to throw up our hands and say, have you heard this one? Why would anyone bring a child into a world like this? Where does that statement come from? It does not come from King Jesus. It comes from the enslaving forces of the world. Y'all here this morning? This message, I probably should have said this at the beginning, is from the core of my being. The world wants to stop us. But look at verse 12. The more the Egyptians tried to stop them, the more they were oppressed. What did they do? The more they multiplied and the more they spread abroad. The more the world turned up the heat, the more they leaned into God's promise and His purpose and His mission. This reminds me of a New Testament passage, Hebrews chapter 10 verse 25, which says, We must not neglect our worship gathering. We must not neglect our need for mutual encouragement in the gospel. And then the author of Hebrews adds this, And all the more... As you see the day drawing near. Are there days that you can feel the day drawing near? Are there days that you can feel the the hot adversity of the world against you as you try to walk in faith? When you feel that, your reaction should not be to run away from church. It should not be to run away from biblical community. It should be to run into it with all you've got. As opposition intensifies, we must not retreat. When life gets hard, we lean hard into God's promises and our purpose. Even when life is hard, God's promises remain. Christ is king. He's returning for his people. And he works through his people to fulfill his mission in the world. So in verse 19, excuse me, verse 15, Pharaoh changes strategies. If he can't break their will to have kids... By enslaving them, he'll just kill their sons. Would you hear with me the word of the Lord, beginning of verse 15 down through verse 21. Then the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shiprah and the other Puah, when you serve as midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. So the king of Egypt called the midwives and said to them, Why have you done this and let the male children live? The midwives said to Pharaoh, Because the Hebrew women are not like the Egyptian women, for they are vigorous and give birth before the midwife comes to them. So God dealt well with the midwives. And the people multiplied and grew very strong. And because the midwives feared God, he gave them families. One thing I want you to get from these verses is this. I want you to take it to heart this morning. 
whether you have kids and grandkids, whether you are single, widowed, divorced, whether you will never have a child for whatever reason or circumstance God has put you in, if you are a part of the people of God, if you belong to Jesus, we all must be willing to put our lives on the line for the sake of the next generation. No one is exempt. No one in this room who's been saved by Jesus is exempt from this statement. We all must be willing to put our lives on the line for the sake of the next generation. We've got to understand what's at stake as we read this text. If Pharaoh can eliminate the Israelites' sons, what does that mean would happen? He would decimate their strength, which is the goal of the king of Egypt, but he would also do what? He would prevent them from persisting as a distinct people. Their women would have to marry, if they married at all, Egyptian husbands, and eventually there would be no people of God. There would be no Israelite nation to exit Egypt, to take the promised land, and await the promise of the gift of God's Son to come through Israel. Do you see the parallels to our own situation? Satan does not want our kids to keep the faith and get future generations to Jesus. The Israelites were waiting for Jesus to come, and now we are waiting for Jesus to come. The world wants to enslave us and stop us from doing God's will. And if they can't stop us from doing God's will, they will settle for killing our children, spiritually speaking. They will settle for poisoning our minds with the idea that kids are too much trouble, too costly, noisy, and disruptive. And if they can't do that, they will settle for us being too distracted Are you all here this morning, church? Too distracted to notice as the world disciples our kids. Your kids will be discipled by somebody. Our children, North Roanoke Baptist Church, are being discipled by someone, either by you or by the world. And the world is more than happy for you to have babies if you'll let the world disciple them. If you'll let the world cripple their lives before they even get started with the lies of the world. Church, church, Satan's plan hasn't changed in 6,000 years. What is his plan? Take out the kids. If he can take out the kids, he can shut the whole thing down. And he's doing it today, how? Through the images that young boys are seeing on smartphones that they're given way too early in life. He's doing it in gaming chat rooms and on social media where parents have checked out and don't have a clue what their kids are talking about. He's doing it in families that never really go all in with a church, a community of faith. And they bring their kids to youth group once a month or they come one out of every six Sundays and then their kids go off to college and they wonder why their kids never believed that this was the substance of their parents' lives. And then they come back to the pastor and say, I just don't understand. Let me help you understand. Are you all in or not? 
Don't leave any doubt in your kids' minds that you love Jesus, that you know Jesus, that you obey Jesus, that you worship Jesus, that you belong to Jesus, that you live for Jesus. Because if you do leave that doubt, don't be surprised when the world comes by and rips their lives apart. Jesus said he offers himself to the church in marriage. Don't flirt with Jesus. Love Jesus. Love him lavishly and let your children see you loving Jesus. God, help us to be your people. Help us to have families that care more about our kids having nice things in life. Excuse me. Less about our kids having nice things in life. And more that our kids know and serve Jesus who is the resurrection and the life. It seems Satan is about to score a major victory in this story. But Satan and Pharaoh hadn't factored in the midwives to their murderous calculus. Church, we need to be midwives. We need to be on the front lines like these women, bringing children into the world so that the world might get to Jesus the Savior. These, these midwives, Shipra and Pua, would risk their own lives for children who were not their own. Are you willing to risk your life for kids that don't belong to you? As verse 17 says, they... They feared God, and they didn't do as the king of Egypt commanded them. Now, what could the king of Egypt have done to them? He could have killed them. He could have taken their own lives. They had more regard for God and his agenda in the world than for their own safety or security or for even their own lives. They understood that fearing God meant doing their part for the next generation. Do we understand that, church, that we're here for the next generation? There's nothing like a church that giving their all to bring the next generation to Jesus to thwart Satan's plan for us and for those that we will reach. When Pharaoh asks why they aren't killing the boys, I love what they say. Israelite women are special. They're having those babies pretty quickly. Now, some people say they lied to Pharaoh. This is crazy. Of course, they didn't have the babies faster. And I, I would submit to you, maybe they lied, but maybe they didn't. Maybe they, I mean, later God's going to part the Red Sea, right? So he very well could have sped up the birthing process in this instance. Or maybe they were having a normal birthing process just like every other woman since the fall of Adam and Eve. But the Hebrew midwives were like, well, we're going to take our sweet time. Let me, let me give you a little update on how midwifing works and we just may not make it to work that day. Or maybe, maybe like Rahab, when she protected the Israelite spies, maybe, she, maybe, maybe these midwives really, really did lie. God doesn't commend them for lying. He commends them for their fear of God and for their faith. But here's the point. If a madman comes in this room in just a moment and asks where the kids are, you don't have to tell them. Is everybody clear on that? And as we raise our kids in a maddened world, we don't have to let them go and become slaves to the world. 
Indeed, I tell you, the world that we send our kids into poses a far greater threat than a madman coming in this door and asking where the kids are. Because it's the world that's threatening their spiritual eternity. Are we willing to sacrifice to save the next generation? Are we willing to believe that leading the next generation to Jesus is more desirable than all other things this world offers, even our own lives? Do we recognize that what we do in our generation for the next generation has an impact for generations to come? Do you think in that way? Do we fear God more than we fear missing out on the shallow, empty, and temporary promises of the world? Do we see, like these Hebrew midwives, that God has given us all a role to play in giving the gospel to kids so they might meet Jesus and lead others to Jesus? And finally, do we believe God? Do we believe that being fruitful and multiplying is for the mission? Do we believe that it is the responsibility of all of God's people? The easiest place in the world to have a baby should be in a church. We should be a community that is all in supporting young families, encouraging young families, cultivating young families, available on demand for young families when stuff comes up. We need to be that place. Church, we never age out of investing in the next generation. If you're 22, 42, or 92, you have not aged out of investing in the next generation. And if you think you can age out of investing in the next generation, I submit to you, you've misunderstood God's mission. God has made us a people to invest in our kids and the kids of others to fuel the next generation who will continue bringing people to King Jesus until He returns. In other words, the world, excuse me, our kids don't need to see us winning as the world defines winning. They need to see us giving them our lives, our passion, our time, our livelihoods to get them to Jesus. Because when we do, they will know that we are looking to Him as our everything. Kids need to see this, by the way, in more than just their parents. They need to see it in a church. They need to see it in more than just their grandparents. They need to see it in more than just their pastor or their kids minister or their student pastor. They need to see it in other adult lives. They need to see it in the lives of Christians who have no earthly reason to invest in them, but every heavenly reason to do so. When I was a young boy and a new believer, there was a senior adult couple in our church that would keep me and my sister from time to time so that my mom and dad could get some time together, refreshing their marriage. Their names... are Raymond and Lois Hodges. They're with Jesus today. I remember three things about them. Every time I crossed the threshold of their house, they beamed from ear to ear with joy that I was there. That's a miracle. <laughs> they gave me huge chunks of sharp cheddar cheese on Ritz or saltine crackers, depending on what was available. And I love cheese and crackers. 
It was a good snack. And as I sat on the floor with my younger sister playing board games in their den, they would read books and speak of Jesus. Raymond and Lois Hodges. 37 years later, and I still know their names, and I can see their faces. I'm here today in part because they invested in my parents and they invested in me. And we are all here today because of two women back in Exodus chapter 1 who had no kids of their own at the time. Two women named Shipra and Pua who put their lives on the line so that you could get to Jesus. Chad Bird says it this way, God used these women powerfully in his plan of redeeming the world. All this set the stage for when God would call a teenage virgin, an everyday girl, to bring forth our Savior. Church, God's promise hasn't changed. But I tell you what, the church needs a few more Raymond and Lois Hodges. The church needs a few more Shipra and Puas. God's mission is the same. We must get our sons and daughters to Jesus, and we need to bring as many others to Him as we can, and that takes a church. It takes parents and grandparents, singles and divorcees, widows and widowers. It takes all of us going all in for the glory of Christ, for the good of our kids and the people they will reach. And my prayer for our church, this church, is that we would be a church that serves kids and families who are not our own. That we would serve kids and students as long as our health permits. And when we are laying in our deathbed, that we would still be praying that Christ would redeem the kids that we knew at our church and that he would use them to save still more. May we intercede for the kids we dedicated this morning like their very lives are at stake because they are. In a world where raising kids is expensive, will we be a community that supports one another, prays for one another, and refuses to see, refuses to see children as a liability or a distraction? You know the difference between churches where their worship has become idolatry and their worship is genuine? It can be the same songs. They can meet at the same time. But worship that loses its focus on reaching others and the next generation has become idolatrous. It's just what I like. Rather than for the king. May thousands upon thousands and even millions upon millions be able to look back from eternity and say, praise God for North Roanoke Baptist Church. Rather than play it safe and coast through life and flirt with the church, they went all in with Jesus and they dared to risk it all for the next generation. And as we do, whether we have kids of our own or not, God will reward our faith. Look at verse 20 and 21 in closing. God deals well with the midwives and he gives them families of their own. 
And I'm here to tell you, whether you have a family biologically or not, whether you have one child to call your own or not, in eternity, every ounce that you spend for the glory of God and investing in the next generation will come back to you manifold because you will be part of the forever family of God. Worshiping Christ who motivates you, who is your reward, for Jesus is our reward. He is our motivation. And if that is true of our church, we will risk it all in faith for the next generation. Would you pray with me? God in heaven, help us to not get distracted from our mission. Help us to not be duped by the world that wants to enslave our children. And God, we pray for the children that have been dedicated today and the ones that were dedicated just a year ago and all the kids who are in our preschool ministry right now and our kids ministry right now. And God, for the children that you are yet to bring. And God, we also pray for the adults who are captive to the enemy called Satan. God, we pray that you would give us opportunity to see them become children of God through our faithful testimony. God, make us a people who's willing to risk it all for the sake of King Jesus and the next generation. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to the North Roanoke Podcast. You can connect with us at northroanoke.org or download our app in your device's app store. Just search for North Roanoke. We hope to meet you soon.